and said, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this evening, Acts chapter 2. Uh, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then it goes to the book Acts. And uh, what we're doing in this series that we're in, and we're, we're really coming to the end of it, we just have two more uh, uh, sermons in this values series, is we're looking at what are the core values of Saints Hill Church. What is this church all about? What's, if you go to build a, the taller a building you build, the, more, the deeper you have to dig for the foundation, right? And so if you're going to have something really beautiful that you're gonna make really big, that you're gonna make something really significant and impactful, you actually have to go really deep first in order to set a solid foundation. And that's really what we're doing is we're looking at our 10 core values and trying to go deep into what do these mean for us as a church and, and how do we live in them. So um, our core value this evening is this, the church is a family that builds family. The church is a family that builds family. You know, um, of all of our values, this is one of our values that's really leading us somewhere that um, some of us haven't really been before. Um, many of the core values, if you were to go back and listen to some of the messages or catch up uh, with one, some of the ones that maybe you missed, uh, a lot of those values, I'd even say all of those values, are, they became St. Hill's values as a church because they were our leadership's personal values. The people who are leading this church, our elders, myself, our lead team, they were our values, and we spent the past year really distilling down what are our values for a family in the Lord, and we've spent some time in them. But um, this value, out of all of them, is one that is actually a slightly prophetic in nature. Um, to us, I think it's an invitation for us to step into family. It's, it's kind of a vision for where we want to go as a church. And so uh, that being the case, let's read in Acts chapter 2. Look down at verse 42. It says this. This is a description of the early church. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Just a beautiful picture of family. Probably most of us have read this at some point or heard this in a message at some point. You, what you really have here is you have, in the first century, people from all different socioeconomic statuses, uh, different races. You have men and women all changing the game on how people were traditionally treated in the first century. It's just beautiful. And, and how they did this, how could they, all these different people come together and, and really be the church so that it spread it's like, you know, one of the largest religions known to humankind today. How did it happen with just these people? It was this. They devoted themselves to something higher than group identity. They devoted themselves to kingdom. Now, um, look down at your Bibles. Notice what they were doing. Verse 42 says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So uh, the first thing that we see, like what are the keys to this community that we're looking at? Well, they actually have hierarchy. Isn't that interesting? For us, like millennials, we're like, what? Hierarchy? No, that's not how it's supposed to work. They had hierarchy in the first century church. And there was this devotion to the main thing. You have the fathers in the house, the apostles, who are preaching and teaching the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom is here. And, and there's, there's, here's the reality. For them, there's no commission without submission. You get that? You, there's no like, hey, you guys don't have to listen to our teaching. You can just come and hang out with us. It's, there's something to be taught here. There's a gospel message to be believed. There's something to, for your heart and your mind to be changed by. There's submission, then there's commission. Let's change the world. Really, really beautiful stuff. The other thing that we see them doing is they're eating food in remembrance of Jesus. How many of you guys like that? 
This isn't just like the little snack that we give you on Sundays. This is like full-on meals coming together, breaking bread, it says, in their homes and in the temple courts. What are they doing? When you eat, your mouth is full, so you have to listen. You ever notice that? Eating's powerful spiritual discipline because what you're doing is you're actually taking time to sit down with someone and you're taking turns sharing with one another. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. What else is going on? Verse 43, look down. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So there's signs and wonders breaking out. There's miraculous things happening. People are getting healed. Destinies are being prophetically called out over people. They're charismatics. It's amazing. Verse 44, it says this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They knew what they had been given, and so they could give away whatever it was that they had. Your generosity always reflects your gratitude. They were grateful, and so they were able to be generous to the people around them. What a witness to the outside world. Verse 46, it says this. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Today, many people uh, will, will tell me that there's, you planted a church. Who needs church? I don't, even, I don't have to go to church to be a follower of Jesus. And I always say, of course you don't have to go to church to be a follower of Jesus. But don't stop gathering with fellow believers. Don't stop taking time to get people around you who know the truth and believe the truth and can speak that truth into your life. You need it. It's so important. And then lastly, it says this in verse 47. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. That's a nice season right there. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what were they doing? They're praising God. Worship is central. They're giving him his due. They know what he's given them, and they're giving him worship in song and in deed. And also, what do we see? Evangelism is present. People are coming to faith. There's not just transfer growth from some other church. There was no other church. They're just growing because of the power of the gospel. Now, as we read that, isn't there something in you that says, yes, that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of? You're not alone. There is a significant desire for family in our culture. You know, as of late, um, and culturally, we've been told time and time again that family doesn't really matter. Um, it, it doesn't matter what sort of people you call a family, um, and as our culture is more and more hostile to a man married to a woman for life with children, still, people are obsessed with the concept of family, you, you, whether, you know, our TV shows kind of give us away, um, whether it's Downton Abbey or This Is Us or Modern Family, all of those shows are a reflection of the American desire for family. We want family. Why is that? Why do we still make shows about family? Because deep down, many still have a hope that there is a place where they can feel safe where they can be adventurous and empowered, all without the potential of losing relationship. Don't you want that? I was just talking with somebody the other day who they said this to me. They said, you know, when I came to Christ, I didn't get saved because Jesus like broke through my door and, and saved me. I got saved because the church was a family and I didn't have one. I wanted family. And this desire for family is a really good desire. It's actually put there by God. God designed us for family. Um, from the very beginning of the scriptures, it was God's plan to seed the world with his goodness through a family. How many of you guys know Genesis 1.27? You know that verse? Be fruitful and multiply. It's a good command for married couples. It's pretty nice. Be fruitful and multiply. And I don't know if you noticed this. This is something I just realized. But Adam was not attacked by the enemy until Eve came around. Did you ever notice that? Why? I would put forth to you this evening that Satan wasn't threatened by Adam, but he was threatened by family. Family's valuable. That's why family's attacked. And so did you know that God's answer to sin entering the world is family? Somebody mentioned in pre-gathering prayer that they just had on their heart this idea of being blessed. We're blessed by God so that we can be a blessing. Do you guys know where that comes from? 
It's Genesis chapter 12. Well, what, that's like the vision over all believers' lives. Why? Because God sees the brokenness in humanity. He calls Abraham and he says, I'm gonna bless your family. Abraham's like, just me and my wife? We don't have any kids? No, I'm gonna give you kids so that you can be a blessing and I'll bless all the nations on earth through your what? Your family, right? So picture this. In the old covenant, as the family of God grows, the family of Satan is pushed back. Very interesting. In the Old Testament, the way that the people of God grew was through people having babies. That's why the command is be fruitful and multiply so that the people of God can grow, the kingdom can expand. But how many of you guys understand this actually shifts in the New Testament? In the New Covenant, it's very different. Um, We go from uh, the kingdom growing through people having babies to the kingdom growing through people getting born again by the Spirit. Really, really a huge shift. Um, you, you would be hard-pressed, though there's so much out there about marriage in the kingdom, and marriage is important, you would be hard-pressed to find Paul or Jesus ever elevating marriage as being more important or above a single lifestyle. You just would. Um, because the primary allegiance in the new covenant changes from the nuclear family to the family of the spirit. No one is born a Christian. Do you guys know that? Nobody is like, oh, we're Christians. We had a baby. It's a Christian baby. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it works. My wife and I were reading this book from the uh, 50s or something, and in it, this guy said, God has no grandsons. What does that mean? God has no grandsons, or he has no granddaughters. What it means is that in the new covenant, being born into a family doesn't get you into the kingdom. It's having a relationship with the Father. You're not related as like a, a grandson to God. You're either a son or you're a daughter. It's being born again that gets you into the family. And so here's what it means is that the church becomes the primary vehicle for family. Even if, if, if you're here and you don't, you're not going to have kids or you can't have kids or you're not married, you are entitled to no less family than anyone else. Why? Because the family of God takes precedence over the nuclear family. The church is a family that builds family because it's built on the blood of Jesus. His blood becomes our primary blood for where our allegiance lies. We're actually in charge to lay down our allegiance to our blood groups in order to come under his blood. So, little recap. Family matters to God. It's how he wants to change the world. It's not for those who, have, who are married or gonna have kids. It's for those who have the blood of Jesus coursing through their veins. But, here's the catch. The desire for family is a good desire, but it can't be disconnected from the mission of God and the culture of heaven. If your desire for family is disconnected from the mission of God and the culture of heaven, it will lose its purpose. You may motivate people through rules and settle for community instead of family. Many have come to expect and settle for community because family requires deep personal sacrifice. Anybody who's a dad or a mom knows this, there's no family without sacrifice, right? See, the kingdom of God is a family. And when you leave the concept of family for community, even because it seems like, hey, it's asking people too much to be family. You guys, many of you guys don't even know each other. We're saying be family. Let's just have community groups. When you do that, you've you've left the concept of the kingdom. There's a huge difference between community and family. Community is something that many feel that they're entitled to from the church that they attend, but family is the way that the kingdom is governed. Totally different things, two completely different things. Family is a way of being governed and serving where the quality of community is always judged based on what you can receive from it. It's like, do they have the right kind of discipleship curriculum? Okay, I'm in that community. Does it have the right kind of people that I'm kind of similar to, but just dissimilar enough that we don't look like a homogenous group? Do they have that? Okay, then I'm in. 
Um, do, do the people in that group, do they have the right connections? Are they going to get me places in life? Okay, then I'm in. Is, is this family, is this community the closest thing to Acts 2 that I could find? If not, I'm gonna, I'm, my search continues. And, and with this rise of this concept of community as a way to beat back individualism, many treat the church as though its primary commodity wasn't encountering God, but to give you people to do life with. It's like, why do you want a church? I just want people to do life with. Did you know you have, he died so that he could do life with you? Ever thought about that? It's not funny, okay. Um, many understand that if the church's family that it isn't a place where we find or we don't find our favorite commodities. The church must be a place that is governed by family principles. So what are they? You're like, you're just saying family over and over again. What does that actually mean, Alex? I hear you. Here's what it means. Four points for you note takers tonight. You're gonna like this. We want to develop a church that is governed by the truth of apostolic family principles apostolic family principles. You're like, what the heck are you talking about? Four principles from the apostolic family model we see in the scriptures. The first is this. <laughs> you guys are so lively. An apostolic, I'm trying up here. Do you see this? I'm like moving my arms and like, you guys get into this. You can say something. The apostolic family is not here just to meet your needs. This is a good quote. This is from Jacob V. Hill. The only way a family thrives and reaches its potential is when you realize the purpose of family isn't to meet needs, it's to change the world. <laughs> there is a huge difference between an apostolic church and a pastoral church. In one, the primary concern of the church is safety. In the other, the primary concern is complete and total cultural transformation. See, there are different gifts in the church. There's different gifts represented in this room. And according to the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's actually an order to these gifts. It says this, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, the apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and different kinds of tongues. In the list that you'll find in Ephesians chapter two, evangelism is added in there as well. Now, here's the thing that's fascinating to me. Paul gives an order or a numerical number to each gift. Isn't that interesting? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? I think, just my opinion, you can disagree with me, that's totally fine, but my opinion is that Paul gives us an order to these gifts to inform the leadership structure of a church. So, what is he saying? First, the apostles, second, the prophets, and on it goes. What is he saying? Churches should be led by people who are apostolic and prophetic because the church takes, whatever church it is, because that, the church will take on the character qualities of the person who leads it, a, a church that is led by a teacher, the primary focus of that church will be defending the faith and instilling doctrine. Because that's what teachers are all about. That's their gift to the church. Their gift is, here's doctrine, here's the truth, let's instill it in us. It's a beautiful gift. If you have a church that's led by an evangelist, what's the primary focus? The primary focus will be more souls for the kingdom. Just get out there and let's evangelize. I have this friend named Chris who is obsessed with evangelism to the point that he can't not do it. Having lunch with him is terrifying because he's always telling people about Jesus. You're like, maybe we could have just like an evangelism-free burrito every now and then. You're right. He's like, yeah, I, did I just say that? I can't say that. Um, that's the focus. They just burn for that. If you have a pastor that leads a church, their primary gifting is shepherding. What will the focus be? Keeping people safe and meeting people's needs. Great gifts to the church. Gifts that we need in this church. But the prophet and the apostle have a primary concern with not what's happening around them or in theology or any of that, but with what God is up to in heaven right now. 
That's what they're, that's what they're interested in. What's going on up there? We want to see that here. And, and the, the apostle and the prophet, they have gifts that empower the others to not simply be focused on earth's issues, but to be heavenly minded about their passion. So an apostle or prophet, they actually make the teaching gift better because they infuse it with the direction of what's happening in heaven, not just what uninspired men have been said about inspired words. It it makes the pastoral gift better because it says, hey, we're not just gonna keep people where they are. God has a plan. He wants to move them forward, and so let's pastor them and come up with a plan to shepherd them forward. You need all of the gifts and, and just for a little snippet, Jake always likes to remind me of this. Jesus wasn't one of these. He was all of them. That's what we should aim for. But what does it mean for a community to be apostolic? What does it mean for the family of God to be apostolic? Well, Paul uses this word apostle to describe leaders in the church. And primarily, he's describing people in the church who were sent to start new churches in various places. So many have come to thought that, oh, what it means to be apostolic is that you are just like a kingdom entrepreneur. You just go out and you just start stuff all over the place. That's what it means. Well, um, what, what's interesting to me about that word apostle is that um, Paul is primarily speaking to a Jewish context. There's some Gentiles in the mix. But it's curious to me that when he described the leadership of the church, he didn't pick a term that Jewish people were familiar with. See, he could have picked priests, and God gave first the priests to the church, but he didn't. He said apostle, and he didn't say patriarch. He's like, hey, remember Abraham, like, you know, the original call on all of our lives? Hey, God gave first the patriarchs to the church. He says first the apostles. Why? Well, this word apostle is a fascinating word. It was used to describe, it was a Roman military term. It was a a Roman military guard who would go after a place had been conquered by Rome, and the apostle's job was to make that place look like Rome. The entire vision of that person was to say, hey, look, we just conquered you, we dominated you, sorry, Uh, but here's the deal. We're going to bring a great culture. We got all kinds of good art. We got all kinds of, so columns, we don't actually build them in squares. We actually, they're round and kind of tapered. And uh, the way that you're going to build your house is going to look like this. And here's actually the kind of food. Have you ever had Kalamata olives? Like that's what we eat now. And the the whole job of the apostle was, I got to make this place look like Rome. Why does Paul pick it? Because the desire of the apostle is to make the place look, wherever they are, to make the place look, feel, and be like heaven. This is my home culture. This is what I want to see right here. So who are apostles? Kingdom entrepreneurs? Well, think about this. You could conquer a hundred different towns, but if they don't look like Rome, then you're not an apostle. You could plant a hundred churches, but if they don't look like heaven, you're not an apostle. The apostle's primary desire is to see heaven become the dominant culture in a place. And I, at St. Hill, I'm not concerned about titles or how our church is perceived by other churches or the wider community, but I am concerned with a church getting a vision to move from being a place where people come to only have their needs met to being a place that seeks, that seeks the kingdom's expansion above anything else. That's what we're after here. Many people have pursued family and, and for family's sake or pursued c- community for community's sake. I just need friends. Here, here's, here, I know this is kind of a hard word to hear, but if you could ask people, you go to downtown Portland, you drive around, you find somebody who hates Christians, and you said, okay, I know you hate Christians, so could you just d- design what you want the church to be like? Do you know what they would say? The church should be a community for one another. You can just be friends in there. And it should do social justice. But don't ever talk about changing the world. Don't ever talk about truth claims. So we have to ask ourselves, have we allowed the culture to inform more what we do in here than we've allowed the call on the life of every believer from the New Testament? See, there is a difference between a church who says, come and let us help you, and the church that equips its family members and says, go, heal the sick, 
cleanse the demonized, raise the dead, proclaim the good news that the kingdom is here. So the family of God, what's the apostolic family look like? It looks like a family that isn't here to just meet needs. It's to transform the world. Secondly, secondly, in an apostolic family, there's authority. Family doesn't come from a flat organization. That's not how family works. Many have thought that the problem with our current culture today, with business, government, school, is that all of those things have hierarchy. That's what's wrong with them. But in reality, the problem with hierarchy is that many have been unable to find a father or a mother who make it their aim to use their power to empower others. We just haven't seen that. It's extremely rare. We're so... (laughs) Kind of, my wife might laugh at this. It's a little bit of a deep dive. We are so informed by Marxism that we have come to associate power equals bad, oppressed equals good. That's not kingdom, and that's not family. That's not the truth. If you are in pursuit of family without hierarchy, you're in pursuit of a kingdom without a king. Authority in your life is meant to give you meaning and purpose. It has the word author in the name. That's what it's all designed to do, give you meaning and purpose. And in the kingdom, there is a hierarchy and an authority, and it's a good thing, because can you imagine how much help a powerless Jesus would have been? He's like, if he came and he's like, hey, listen, guys, I don't have any authority up there in heaven. I can write a memo, I'll put it on God's desk, I'll file a little incident report. We'll see what happens with this whole leprosy thing. See if we can work that out. No, no, no. We have a father with authority who gives his authority to fathers and mothers in the church. Paul says this. He says, you have had many guardians but few fathers. I want to see fathers and mothers rise up in Saints Hill Church and father and mother this house. It's not a power trip. It's a group of people saying, we have some life under our belt. We have have some experience going places in the spirit that maybe some of the younger folks haven't. And we'll take the responsibility to lay our lives down to empower them to go beyond us. Many have never seen that kind of father or that kind of mother. But just because there's counterfeit out there doesn't mean that we don't still long and search and go after the real thing. Just because there's fake money doesn't mean I don't use money. Just because there's been counterfeit mothers and fathers doesn't mean that we don't inform what a mother and a father looks like through God and go after the same thing. We want mothers and fathers in this church to empower the sons and daughters of this house. Stanley Hauerwas, he says this. We as church are ready to be challenged by the other. This has to do with the fact that in the church, every adult, whether single or married, is called to be a parent. All Christian adults have a parental responsibility because of baptism. Biology does not make parents in the church. Baptism does. Baptism makes an all-adult Christian's parents and gives them the obligation to help introduce these children to the gospel. In this regard, the church reinvents the family. So here's what it means. This doesn't mean that we go around pretending that we can be like a father over my friend. I don't go to Wes and be like, hey, I'd, I'd like to be your spiritual father. Like, that's not what we're after right now. But what it does mean is that we do what fathers and mothers do, which is earn trust and authority through taking on responsibility. You didn't quite catch that. Here's what mothers and fathers do. They earn trust and authority by taking on personal responsibility. That's what we're after in this house. So, for you who are older in this church, and I'm basically saying anybody over the age of 30, (laughs) we need you. We love you. This is not a George Fox church. It's not. This is a family with mothers and fathers in it, and there's an opportunity for you to parent again in this church, or maybe for the first time. I'm young. I'm a young man. We're young. We have a young team. 
We need you to own the values of this church and to raise up kids in this house with these values in their hearts. So, invite kids over. Invite them over. Like, I hear this from people, from young people all the time, and this is what they say. They say, I just wish I had a mentor. Do you know how honored, I, whenever I talk to them, I'm like, do you know how honored somebody older in our church would be to know that you would like a men- them to mentor you? That would be so powerful for them. It would be huge, so honoring. And here's, here's part of the deal. Because we have grown up in such a fractured and broken society, many people without a good father or without a father at all, they're scared to talk to you. They're terrified to talk to you. They don't know, they they might think that they're encroaching on your personal time or taking away from your family time. So here's what I'm asking. Phil and Diane Comer, they uh, helped plant Solid Rock and uh, by way of another church have helped us plant as well. When they started Solid Rock, they said this. They, they, They prayed for young people to come to the church. And you know what they did? They had to scale back their preferences with music, with church style, with how, how, what people wore when they preached, with what people wore when they led worship, so that they could empower the next generation. Let me ask you this, if you're older in the room, do you have the maturity to scale back your preferences in order to pour into another generation? I think you do. We're gonna be good at this. We're gonna be an example as, as a church that has older and younger people in it, together who are mutually learning from one another and being poured into each other. If you're young in the room, Listen, listen. If it, just because they would do things differently than you or they're, they're not hip or cool or have the right things to say, it doesn't matter. Look at the heart. Look at the core of their values. What has given them wisdom up to this point in their life and follow their advice. I cannot tell you how many times, I guess I'm like, I'm 28 years old and so there's, I was a youth pastor for a number of years. There's a lot of young people that I would mentor and I'd say, hey, you know, you really want my advice? I think you should do this and they go and they do the opposite. It's like, okay, you wanted my advice but you did the opposite and now you're reaping the the negative benefit of what, you, of what you did. So if you're young in the house and you want mothers and fathers who empower you, take time to listen. Take time to listen. I really think that God is calling us into mentoring relationships that happen from young people being desirous to know the deep wisdom of God. And God is looking to reinstate some older people in this house who have come to believe that their time is past. It's not past. We need you. The time is now to see power and authority that serves and empowers. That's a family principle in the kingdom. Okay, that was a long one. Sorry about that. Thirdly, real family distinguishes between unity and uniformity. Community groups are built around necessity and program. The primary desire is to meet the need of friendship and to have a program for discipleship so that a church can say, hey, to stop pressuring us, we have a discipleship program. Jump into it. But family is built around freedom, choice, and personal responsibility, which I suppose is the discipleship curriculum that Jesus used. Freedom, choice, personal responsibility. What this means is that instead of creating groups that tow the party line or the, church do- the doctrines of our church, families celebrate individuality and yet hold family members to the character of Christ. Hopefully this kind of communicates. It's sort of a crude example, um, and it's in the natural, so just bear with me. Um, I grew up in a basketball family, all about basketball, So much about basketball, we have a literal basketball court in our backyard. My brother and I, yeah, Blazers. Go, you got the Blazers shirt on today, Randy. I appreciate that. Um, Total basketball nuts. Uh, My dad played basketball for George Fox. My uncle played basketball for George Fox. We watched basketball, went to basketball games. All of our time was basically consumed with basketball. And I was good at basketball. It was something that I excelled at. I loved basketball. I had a great mentor in basketball. I'd spend time working on a drop step and a reverse dribble and all kinds of stuff in the backyard. Sometimes we'd move the trampoline underneath the hoop. My brother and I'd play slam ball. It was amazing, good childhood. After my freshman year of high school, I was done with basketball. I was over it. I can't do basketball anymore. I'm trying to figure out who I am, and I'm like, I'm not sure that I'm really basketball. Alex, you know, like, am I basketball Al or whatever? No, I'm not. 
So I realized, you know, who I am, I love to skateboard. I love to snowboard. I love to, like, play my guitar and get moody and make art. <laughs> That's pretty different from basketball. That's a pretty big cultural swing from a high schooler playing basketball to that. So, you know, I quit basketball. I said, you know what, I'm done with basketball. And my parents were so supportive. They're like, you know, if you, you know, really think about it, but if you want to quit basketball, that's totally fine. You can quit basketball. But you would have thought around my high school that it was like a disaster took place. But I had like principals calling me into the office. Hey, so I really want to talk to you today about just this choice you made to stop playing basketball. I'm like, what? Well, let me be me. Can I be me? You know, it's like, you know, listen, we really want to make it to state next year. We, we're going to need you, son. You got, we got to put you back in there. I'm like, no, I'm done playing basketball. <laughs> Here's what I knew about my father. I knew that my father cared more deeply about whether I carried the heart of a retman than whether I did the thing that he was interested in. We need to develop a family here where we give people the ability to become who they are in Christ while caring more deeply about do they have the heart of someone who calls Saints Hill family? Do they carry those values? One of the leadership maxims, we have all these, like a whole list of maxims, little sayings that just encapsulate our values and our vision. One of them that we have is that apostolic leadership aims for a garden instead of a forest. So here's the metaphor. Many churches you come to, they say, hey, listen, we're a pine tree forest kind of church. So what we're after is we're after pine trees. And so if you're a pine tree, you're going to work great in this community. We'll plant you front and center. We'll water you. We'll take care of you. We're building a forest of pine trees. It's going to be, nobody, the world's never seen a church like this. I don't want a forest where everybody looks and talks like the same. I don't want that. I would much rather have a garden. You see, in a garden, a church that, that is garden leadership focus is this. Who are you? Oh, you're a sunflower. Okay, you're a tomato plant. Okay, you're a watermelon. Okay, you're corn. Okay, we want to actually plant you. You're a pine tree. Great, come over here. We're going to plant you here and water you here. Why? Because a garden is far more beneficial to a family than just a forest. That's what we're after here. When character is put at the center, you create a place where truth reigns, but freedom is there to become who you are. And when you become who you are, you become a gift to the family. I, I, I was just thinking about this the other day. I never told you, Emily, but you know, some, we don't have kids yet, but we want kids. And I was thinking about how excited I am to have kids because they're not going to be me. So see, like, our relationship's great. We're best friends. It's lively. She's, she's incredibly spicy, and so it's, it, there's a lot of good tension and interesting conversation. If you know my wife, it's, a, it's an amazing marriage. I'm so grateful for it. But when we have a kid, it's going to be like, whoa, there's a whole other personality here, and it just it became a gift to our family. We don't win if you don't become who you really are. Nobody who knows who they really are in Christ will ever want to be anybody else. So if you want to be somebody else, then you must not know who you really are in Christ. I hope that this is a family environment where you can grow to know who you really are in Christ. In a family, it's the character qualities and the values of that family that are eternal and don't change, but the gifts, the passions, those things have freedom to become whatever God has placed in the heart of the individual. This is the heart of diversity in the kingdom. You don't get diversity by focusing on trying to shore up any kind of relationship or weaknesses with different people. And, oh, have we had, you know, like the, the, the Spanish-speaking uh, church? Or are we, are we, have we had their food at a gathering? Or are, are, we, are we making sure that we're speaking to that person? That's not how you get unity. Our culture thinks that's how you get unity. How you get unity is by being one in the same spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit so that we can become one. We can be unified. It doesn't mean that we forsake our identities. In fact, it means that your identity becomes a gift rather than a burden. Lastly is this. Fourth point, family is the context for greatness. Family is the context for greatness. The purest desire of a father or a mother is to see their children surpass them in every way. But this is an absent desire from a parent who is insecure, 
I would describe the world essentially as running on insecurity. Um, insecurity is based on the belief that God doesn't care for me. That's where insecurity comes from. Nobody's going to look out for me. I remember when I first moved to Portland six years ago or so. I'm driving downtown. I'm looking at all the high buildings. I, I just had started my uh, job in an office down there. And I'm, I'm just thinking about, wow, the city's so amazing. And all of a sudden, I don't know if it was the context or what it was, I had this thought come into my mind. And here was the thought. If you don't look out for yourself, who will? I thought, wow, that's really true. You know, all these people got what they've got because they worked really hard and they looked out for themselves. If I don't look out for myself, well, who's going to look out for me? It's a dog-eat-dog world. I better look out for myself. And that that belief uh, essentially shaped my world for two years and led me into an incredibly bitter and miserable place. This is the mantra of Western culture. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And then we wonder why people come to churches and consume instead of invest. It's because their family culture has taught them that competition is more important than empowerment. But the, the family is supposed to be the opposite. The family is supposed to be the training ground for greatness. When Jesus was asked by his disciples how they could become greater than one another, which is just an amazing question, such honesty and transparency. How do I get greater than that person? Here's what Jesus said to them. He said this. Next slide. <laughs> the, kings of, <laughs> the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? The secret to greatness is the same secret to family and its service. It's service. The church isn't a business, it's family. It's not a business, it's family. So the question that we have is how do we serve one another? This is from a, this example is from a guy named Banning Leapshire. He's at a church in Sacramento called Jesus Culture and a lot of this value he's given some influence to Jacob and myself for it. But imagine if you treated your home like it was a restaurant. Like um, I love to eat out. It's like one of my all-time joys in life is going out to dinner. Just this last week, my wife and I went uh, to Cafe Mingo, one of our favorite spots downtown for some good Italian food. It was awesome. Italian food in the Nutcracker. Food is better, but I'm growing. I, one day, I'll think that that was, that that was cool. Um, but imagine if I treated my home, my family, like it was a restaurant. My, my mother-in-law's like, well, sometimes you kind of treat it like it's a restaurant. I was like, sorry about that. But imagine if I came, I live with my in-laws right now. Imagine if I came home after a long day of work, I'm like, oh, I'm tired. And I sat down at the table, I'm like, what is taking them so long? Where's the water? And then, and, and then I'm like, oh, God, this bread, it's, it's a little stale. What is this, day old? You don't have anything fresh? Come on. Hey, can I, can I get a menu around here? Or, or uh, you know, um, yeah, the steak was okay, but, you know, just a little bit fatty. I'm going to send it back. You guys, can, can you get, give me another steak? Like, that's weird. Because it's family. It's not a business. You can't treat your family like it's a restaurant. It just doesn't fly because family is built on sacrifice instead of being served. And that's the culture we want to develop here. That's the foundation do you know what a, what a bad parent would do if their kid treated them like they were like a, a waiter? A bad parent would cave. Be like, oh, okay, yeah, sorry. Oh, you didn't like that? Oh, uh, yeah, you don't have to eat that. Here, let me get you this. That's what a bad parent does. What a good parent does is they would say, go get your own water. Go get your own bread. You don't like the steak? Cook it yourself. Why? Because in a family, enabling removes personal responsibility, but empowerment increases it. <laughs> yeah. We want a church where greatness is encouraged, empowered, and defined as having the ability to go low in service of others. That's greatness. Sometimes I would read this passage about greatness and I would think, well, Jesus isn't down on greatness necessarily in it, but should we even desire greatness? Yes. 
You were designed to be great. The world isn't convinced by a bunch of people who are like, yeah, we got some okay truth and we're humble and we're not actually that great. Nobody's convinced by that. They're convinced by a group of people that so have the gospel deep in their hearts that it's changed them from the inside out and they become great because of it. The key is this. We just have to understand where greatness comes from. Jesus says this in John 15. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one seen than, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. He's like, I want you to have joy and I want you to be great. What's the key? Laying down your life for one's friends. So another one of our maxims is this. We're here to build big people, not big ministry. We're here to build big people, not big ministry. What's the difference? In one, you're interested in doing something cool and big and great and revolutionary that the culture has never seen before. But in the other, your goal is to get the gospel so deeply into someone in such a huge way that they, cha- that they understand the authority Jesus has given them and they change the atmosphere wherever they go. That's a big person. I've been having some conversations with people recently from the church and they're like, I just never understood what being his righteousness really meant. Oh, you've just taken a step towards greatness because what his generosity towards you will do will equip you to have the identity and the security to then serve. What a beautiful thing. Business principles can create a big ministry, but only family can create big people. So we're gonna be family. You know, um, to end, I know that this is a lot of theory, and uh, I've probably been like preaching for an hour. Sorry about that. Um, But this is really where we have to start this conversation as a church. We're gonna spend the rest of our church's life fleshing this value out. Um, But I do know that this is in the room. What do we do? It's all good ideas. What do we actually do as a church now? The first takeaway tonight is this. Invite someone over to your house. Invite someone over, all of you, no matter how old you are, what your house looks like, invite someone over to your home and get coffee with them. That person that you met during the four minutes, take a risk. Be family. Invite them over. I hear people like, come. one of the number one requests that I get is, hey, so when are we gonna start up community groups? What are we doing for community? And I'm like, let me, whoa, pause. Hang on a second. You're telling me that you have the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead and you can't invite someone over to your house for dinner? Really? <laughs> I think that's funny. It's time to tap into the Holy Spirit It's time to get in the flow and to say, empower me, Lord, not to speak in tongues or heal people or give a prophetic word, but in this moment, empower me to invite somebody over to my house for dinner so that we can be family. I promise you this right now, if you don't, this value means nothing to us. You gotta do it. Secondly, I know that there's a lot of us in the room who we grew up in broken families and so even all this talk about family and, and, and fathers and mothers, you're like, oh man, I just don't know. So I'm actually gonna invite, uh, Jim, would you mind coming up? And if you're Jake, wherever you're at, and uh, Hannah, would you guys come up? What we wanna do is we actually wanna transition, we wanna pray. Um, many of us have had our minds um, formed around the idea of family and fatherhood based on the kind of fathers that we had. Now, some of you guys have great fathers, and, uh, and I, I, like I did, and, and that's a really good thing. Either way, though, we need to have our concept of father shaped by him. There, there is no family here without a revelation of the father for you personally. It just isn't. And so um, Jim's one of our elders, uh, just one of my favorite people in the whole world, and we get together about every other week, and we talk about the direction and the doctrine and the discipline of this church. And uh, Jim is a father, uh, been a father for many years, and uh, this evening when we had our pre-gathering prayer, one of the uh, words that Jim felt like was for this gathering was that there's a young man in particular who didn't have a good father and just really needs his, his mind about fatherhood and his idea of what it means to 
have a good father changed. And there's something powerful about having a good man and a good father who can pray over you if you haven't had a good man or a good father in your life, whether you're a boy or a girl. And so we just want to take some time. Would you guys all stand up uh, together with us? We want to take some time to just um, really reflect and, and ask the Lord to give us a new vision for what family looks like. So I'm going to ask you to be brave. Um, we're brave here at St. Hill. We do things that probably aren't culturally normal in other spaces. But I would just ask you, if that's you, and you, you, you've had a broken family, or you haven't had the best relationship with your father, or you're like, I can't even really conceptualize God as a father because of all the pain that I've gone through. We actually want you to, to just raise your hand real fast, and we're going to have Jim just pray a father's blessing over you. And so if that's you and you haven't had a good um, example of a father, um, Jim, would you mind, uh, if you're next to somebody who has their hand up, would you mind just um, reaching out, putting your hand on their shoulder? And Jim, as a father of this house, is, wants to empower you, pray for you, and ask for a new encounter, a new revelation of the Father's love for you. <laughs> Good. We should go. <laughs> Alex, I feel like I just need to say thank you for being obedient uh, to mm. your Father in Heaven to speak the truth to us. Mm. And so I uh, just want to pray over, over you. So God, we just uh, thank you for your wonderful example of uh, being our Father. You're loving, forgiving. Uh, you're merciful and gracious. And some of us here tonight didn't have the opportunity to act, have that picture in a, in a father here, an earthly father. And you've set up in your hierarchy such a wonderful example of what family looks like, and we've heard that tonight. Uh, but it may be hard, and you still have that gnawing in your gut whenever you think of that relationship. And it's still hard for you to maybe believe what we've heard tonight, that God is loving, he's forgiving, he's graceful gracious and merciful he's forgiving and that you have a wonderful inheritance and he's looking down at you and he's proud of you and it's tough for you to believe tonight maybe so we just pray God that you would um, filter out all those things uh, that you'd begin to surround these people if it's you in particular that you'd be able to begin to feel that true love of the father that you'd surround them with people that can make them part of the family and that there can be that trust and that accountability uh, to receive that love. Thank you, Father, that you know the hearts of us all and that you take our grumblings, our prayers, Holy Spirit, uh, in accordance to the, to the will of the Father. And so we thank you for that. So we ask your blessing on all these tonight. And in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Jim. Appreciate that.